So I want you to imagine a university student who goes to the university one day and discovers that in four weeks, there's going to be a very important exam that he has to take. Doesn't know anything about the topic of this exam, but he has to take it. And this exam will determine, the results of this exam will determine his future educational opportunities, his future job opportunities, his future career opportunities. Super important exam. Doesn't know anything about what the topic is about. So imagine, though, that this student then goes home, and instead of studying on this topic, he decides to check out what's happening with his friends on Facebook, and then maybe decides to go to the gym, get some exercise, that's a good thing to do. Maybe meet some friends for, for coffee after that. Maybe he goes home and calls his parents, catches up on them. Maybe pays some bills, balances his budget, sees what's happening on the news, and that's what happens day after day after day after day, and he never studies, and he walks into the exam. Imagine that, that scenario. Now, the things he was doing weren't bad things. They were good things. The problem was that he was neglecting the most important thing. See that? Feel that? Millions of people around the world are neglecting the most important thing, which is learning about God, knowing God, going deeper and understanding God. Millions of people, maybe, maybe some of you, are neglecting the most important thing, which is God himself. I mean, just think about it. Your whole future life here on earth is in God's hands. And your eternity after this life is in God's hands. Which means that everything is about God. The Bible says that all things are from God, which means they are created by God. The reason you are here is because God made you. That's why you're here. Not only is everything from God, everything is through God, which means that it's God who sustains everything. The reason your heart just beat that last time and you're healthy is because God chose to have your heart beat again that time and that time and that time. He is sustaining you every second of your life. Everything is not just from God, it's also through God. He sustains everything. And everything is for God, which means God is the purpose of everything, the goal for everything, the aim of everything, the point, the purpose of everything is God. And so if we are not learning about God, we are missing the point of everything. We need to be learning about God. Now, good news is that God has made that easy for us. He hasn't left us to try to figure things out in our own minds or to try to feel or intuit who God is or, you know, we follow our heart. And I don't know about you, but my heart's like heading that way Monday and heading that way on Tuesday, okay? We don't need to worry about thinking about it, coming up with our own ideas or intuition or feeling. God has given us a book, the Bible, written by Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles and working through these prophets and apostles so that the book you hold in your hands is the very words of God. Makes this book completely different from every other book. I mean, there's millions of books out there. This book stands alone. 
This is the book from God. Holy Bible. And see, that's why we encourage everyone in Grace Church to have a rhythm in your life of regular reading of the Bible, studying of the Bible on your own. That's why in our home groups we come together and we study the Bible. And that's why here Friday mornings we preach from the Bible. So are you ready? With that introduction, let's turn to Genesis chapter 49 this morning. We're coming to the end of the study of Joseph's life. Next week we'll wrap up, Lord willing. It's been an amazing study. And in Genesis chapter 49, we're going to see Jacob's final words to each of his 12 sons. And these final words and what Moses writes in Genesis 49 is going to teach us some crucial truths about God. So let's start with this question. First question, what are Jacob's final words to each of his sons? Start reading in verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So Jacob gathers together his 12 sons, and each of these sons is going to have many, many offspring, many descendants, and each of these 12 sons and their descendants will become one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jacob's final words to these 12 sons are words to the sons and to the tribes, to the offspring, to the the people that, that come as their descendants. Jacob starts with his firstborn son, Reuben. Now to understand these words to Reuben, you have to remember that back in Genesis 35, Reuben had sexual relations with Jacob's concubine. Now a concubine uh, back in those times was like a a second-class wife. Um, That was not part of God's plan. God's plan was very clear back in Genesis chapter 2. We've already studied that. God's plan is for marriage to be one man marrying one woman for life. That's his plan. But Jacob had numerous wives and he had concubines and Reuben had sexual relations with one of his concubines, which was horribly wrong for Reuben to do. And so look at what Jacob says to Reuben, verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So because of Reuben's sin, Reuben lost his rights and preeminence as the firstborn son. So that's Jacob's final words to Reuben. Next, we have his final words to Simeon and Levi. Now he treats them together second-born, third-born, Simeon and Levi, because of what they both did described back in Genesis 34. Again, another painful story to read about. In Genesis 34, there was a man named Shechem 
who was a Hivite. <clears throat> the Hivites were part of the, one of the Canaanite tribes. Shechem was a Hivite Canaanite. And Shechem sexually assaulted Simeon and Levi's sister, Dinah. Horrible thing to do. Absolutely tragic, completely wrong. Terrible, terrible thing to do. But in response, Simeon and Levi lied to all the Hivite people and killed all the Hivite men, which was completely unjust for them to do, completely disproportionate to what had happened, as horrible as what had happened was. And that's why Jacob says what he does in verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So again, strong words of, of curse there for Simeon and Levi. Now that brings us to Judah. We've had some hard words coming up to this point. That totally changes with Judah. Amazing words of blessing to Judah. Start with verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Wow. Okay, see the, feel the different tone here? Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? So Judah is going to be like a strong lion. You've got to understand, in these words given to these sons, these are words that God has given Jacob. They're like prophetic words. They're blessings. In some cases, they're curses. But these words are going to happen because God has given these words, and this is what God's going to do. So Judah is going to be like a strong lion, Judah and his tribe. He is born as a lion's cub. He gets up after eating his prey, lies down to sleep just like a lion would, but don't rouse him like a lioness. Don't rouse lionesses. Then verse 10, and by the way, verse 10 is one of the most important verses in the Old Testament to learn. This is so important. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, it's not an easy verse to understand, and some of the Hebrew is a little bit difficult as well. But a couple things are really clear. First of all, the scepter is a sign of kingly authority. And so Israel's kingly authority, the people of Israel, God's people's kingly authority, shall not depart from Judah, which means that Israel's kings are going to come from the line of Judah. So Jacob is saying to Judah, your offspring are going to be the kings of Israel. And we see that playing out. King David was from the line of Judah. King Solomon's great, 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 great grandfather was Judah. And so Israel's kings come from 
the line of Judah. This is an astonishing honor that God is giving to Judah. It's amazing. Notice that this kingship will be in the tribe of Judah until tribute comes to him and all the peoples obey him. Now notice peoples, plural. All the peoples are going to be obeying this king in the line of Judah. So here's the question, Grace Church. Who is this king in the line of Judah that all the peoples, all the peoples in the earth are going to obey? It's Jesus Christ. So this is another prophecy in Genesis of Jesus. Starts back in Genesis chapter 3:15. The offspring of Eve is going to crush Satan's head. Then Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, the offspring of Abraham is going to bring the blessing of salvation to people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And now here we come that someone in the line of Judah, fully man, also we read through the rest of the Old Testament, fully God, Jesus Christ, is going to be a king, and all the peoples are going to obey him. Now what does that mean, all the peoples are going to obey him? Here's how Paul puts it in the book of Philippians. He says, every knee will bow before Jesus Christ, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That day is going to happen when Jesus returns at the end of history at the second coming. Now, we have to understand this. You're going to be there. Everyone in this room, everyone in this room will be there. And those who have trusted Christ, repented of their sins, put their trust in Christ, they will bend the knee before the Lord gladly, joyfully, worshipfully to glorify him, to exalt him, and they will be welcomed into eternal life, the joy of knowing God, having sweet fellowship with God forever. But there will be others at that same moment who have not put their trust in Christ, who've continued to walk in sin, and they also will bend their knees because they have to. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and they will bend the knee grumblingly, not happily, rebelliously, and then they will be sent to, to hell forever. All the peoples will be obedient to this great, 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 great grandson of Judah, and that is Jesus, because when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter, and you trace the genealogy starting from Abraham, goes Abraham, da 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 Judah, da 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 Jesus. Jesus was the great, 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 great grandson of, of Judah. Now this idea about the lion, you know, Jesus being called the lion of Judah, we sing about that in one of our songs, that's where this starts. Jesus is the all-powerful lion of Judah. Now, keep going in verse 11 and 12. This is a little bit difficult to understand, but here's what we read. Binding his foal, that's a young horse or a donkey, to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk, most commentators see this as just a lavish description of the prosperity that will come forever under the reign of Jesus the Messiah. Foals, donkeys, wine, milk, 
beautiful blessings God will pour out upon this great, 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 great grandson of Judah who is the, the Messiah. So there's Jacob's last words to Judah. Now, Zebulun, verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. So Zebulun's going to be involved in with boats and shipping. So the rest of these are kind of shorter here now. Issachar, verses 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. I looked that up. A couple commentators point out that that Hebrew word can also mean saddlebag. So it's like a donkey with saddlebags, something like that. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. It's clear that the tribe of Issachar is going to be strong, but it sounds like they were maybe willing to be forced labor for the sake of some comforts. Hard to figure that out exactly. And then to Dan, the next tribe, verses 16 and 17. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. The word judge means to lead, to guide, to provide for, to protect. That's going to be happening amongst the tribe of Dan. But also, verse 17, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. Now, serpent could be either taken positively or negatively, and we aren't really sure. It could be positive in the sense that these, vip this, that these viperous people are attacking unrighteousness, or it could be negative that they're attacking the righteous. We aren't sure. I'll let you do some further study on that. Then in verse 18, this is very interesting, Jacob pauses to pray. One sentence prayer. Look at what he says, verse 18. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. So, so get the, the context. So Jacob speaking his last words to this son, this son, this son, this son, this son. And then, then roughly about halfway through, he stops and he says, I, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Now, now what's going on there? I, I think it's that Jacob knows that God has a plan of salvation. Starting from Genesis 3.15, Eve's offspring is going to destroy Satan's work. Genesis 12, Abraham's offspring, same Messiah being talked about, is going to bring the blessing of salvation to people from all the different people groups of the earth. The Messiah ruling, we've just heard that prophesied here. God has a plan to save a massive number of people from every nation, tongue, and tribe through what the Messiah would do. Jacob knows this. And Jacob says, I wait for your salvation. I know that salvation is going to come out of the people of Israel. The Messiah is born from Israel. And so, Lord God, I'm speaking my blessing over these sons, but I'm waiting for your salvation. I'm longing for your salvation. I'm hoping in your salvation. Bring your salvation. That's the Old Testament perspective on salvation, longing for it to come. Now, we in the New Testament, we say, thank you for bringing salvation. Thank you for having the Messiah come. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. But Jacob's just this perfect picture of an Old Testament saint. I'm waiting for your salvation. Send the Messiah. Bring salvation. So he prays that there. Verse 19, Jacob's words to Gad. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. So Gad gets raided, but then defends itself, it sounds like. Verse 20, Asher. Asher's food shall be rich 
He shall yield royal delicacies. Sounds like Asher's descendants are going to be very wealthy, little foodies kind of people or something, right? There they are. Verse 21, Jacob's words to Naphtali. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. So many, many descendants. Then Jacob's last words to Joseph, a little longer here. Verses 22 to 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough. Now a bough is, is a branch, a tree branch. And, this, and Joseph is a fruitful bough. So lots of leaves, lots of fruit. So Joseph is a fruitful bough. Bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. Lots of water watering this fruitful bow. His branches run over the wall. He's just growing everywhere. But 23, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. I think that's just a, a metaphor for what happened when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Look at verse 24. Yet, during this difficulty of slavery, his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob from there, or because he, the mighty one of Jacob, is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So while Joseph was in slavery in Egypt, God strengthened him, kept him faithful, kept him obedient to God. And that's exactly what happens. Remember one of the most powerful illustrations, remember that God enabled Joseph to keep strong in faith even though day after day after day Potiphar's wife was romantically, sexually pursuing him. But day after day after day, God strengthened Joseph to say, no, 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 no. Perfect picture of what God did for Joseph. Then keep reading. In, in verses 25 through 26, underline all the places where the word bless or blessing comes in. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they, all these blessings, be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. So this whole section about Joseph here is just lavish blessings. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing God poured out upon Joseph. One more son, Benjamin. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. So I, I get the picture that the tribe of Benjamin is going to be aggressive warriors. And then verse 28, conclusion to the section. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Now I'm going to stop there because the next section, the rest of this chapter about Jacob's death and about his desires for burial fits in perfectly with chapter 50. So we're going to stop at this point. That's how Jacob blessed his sons. But now we need to stop, step back and ask, what does God want us to learn from this? Here's this list of, of blessings to the 12 sons. What truths does God want to teach us? We want to be learning about the one who is the most important reality in the universe, namely God. And what does God want to teach us 
from this about himself. We've already seen one crucial truth. That is about the Messiah. The Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is going to be born in the line of Judah. We've already seen that. That's super important to understand. But I think there's two more truths in this passage that God wants us to learn. Notice that Jacob's words to Judah and to Joseph are, are much longer than his words to the other ten sons. I, I, I drew a little picture. This isn't exactly to scale. But on average, Jacob spoke 27 words to the other ten sons. I, I counted them up, divided them by ten. I'm not a super math genius, but that's what I came up with. Okay, 27 words. But he, <clears throat> but he spoke 130 words to Judah, almost, almost five times as many, and 141 words to Joseph, which is more than five times as many. My calculator told me that. So, and God had Jacob speak these much more numerous words to Judah and to Joseph because I think there's crucial lessons, especially from Judah and from Joseph that God wants us to get from this passage. So that's how we're going to wrap up here this morning. I'm going to look at what is the truth from the words to Judah and then what is the truth from the words to Joseph so that we can apply both of these truths to our lives. So let's ask, what are we to learn from Jacob's words to Judah? This is so powerful. I've been so gripped by these words and the implications of them. Now remember, in the past chapters in Genesis, Moses has highlighted Judah's sin. It was Judah who came up with the idea of, let's not kill Joseph. We can sell him and make some money. Sell him into slavery. That was his idea. Judah. And then remember that in Genesis chapter 38, there's a whole chapter devoted to describing the sin of Judah. Can you imagine having a whole chapter in the Bible devoting to describing your sin? We, Judah's just glorifying the Lord, though. But anyway, so a whole chapter. It's kind of puzzling because in Genesis 37, the whole drama builds up about Joseph being sold into slavery on his way to Egypt. So by the end of chapter 37, we're all wondering what's going to happen to Joseph in Egypt. And in chapter 38, Moses takes a pause, says nothing about Joseph in that chapter. It's all about Judah's sin. And it's, it's, a, it's a hard passage to read. Judah walks away from the people of Israel, from God's people. He lives with the Canaanites, who are idolatrous people. He marries a Canaanite woman, who's not a believer, obviously. He has some children, they get married. He blatantly lies to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, horribly hurting her in the process. And he ends up sleeping with a woman who he thinks is a Canaanite temple prostitute. It's a hard passage to read. But you come to the end of that passage, like Judah is just dripping with sin. He is sinning blatantly, wickedly, knowingly, rebelliously against God. That's where we are at the end of Genesis chapter 38. So what ends up happening to Judah after all that sin? Start with verse 8. Remember, we just read these. 
Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, strong like a lion. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter, the kings of Israel, shall not depart from the line of Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The Messiah is going to be born from the line of Judah, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Judah, who has sinned so terribly against God in Genesis 37 and 38, receives lavish blessing from God. Just over-the-top blessing from God here. Now, just one side note. One question I had, and I thought maybe some of you might have it, and that is, why does Judah get off so easy if Reuben and Simeon and Levi get such strong words of of judgment? Anybody wondering about that? It's an important question to ask. We We want to ask these questions and ponder them. Here's just some thoughts, see if this helps me settle that question for you. Think about Reuben. Strong words against Reuben, but all that he lost was his position as the firstborn. That was it. Significant, but again, just very focused. And we see evidence of Reuben's change of heart, godliness, through the chapters. It was Reuben who tried to save Joseph's life from the brothers in Genesis 37. And we see that expressed in the further chapters as well. And so I think Reuben had had a change of heart. I think God had saved him. I think Reuben was trusting what God would do through the Messiah. I think he was saved. He lost his position as firstborn, which was appropriate in light of the dishonor he brought to Jacob. But I think he was fully forgiven for his sins. Simeon and Levi, I'm I'm just not so sure about. I don't think we have enough data to know. There's no hint that I have found. If you find some, let me know. But there's no hint of, of... trust in God or godliness in Simeon and Levi through the story of of Genesis and Joseph. That may be why Jacob's judgment against him, his curse is so strong. We, We should hope that they came to faith, but I think we just have to say at this point we're not sure. But the point of the words to Judah are to stun us that someone who has sinned so terribly against God could be blessed so profusely by God. Terrible sin, Genesis 37 and 38. Astonishing blessings described in Genesis chapter 49. How is that possible? How does that happen? And you know, let me just tell you the truth. We all could have Genesis 38 chapters written about us. I hope you're not thinking, you know, Judah, what a terrible person he was. I'm so glad I'm... If you're talking that way, you do not understand. I mean, I grew up as a pretty, pretty good kid, but my heart was not good. And even if you think you've done good things for other people, they may have been good for those other people, but if they weren't done for the glory of God and because of God, then they were done for some other reason, like to make yourself just feel better about yourself or to not feel guilty about yourself or to impress other people, which makes the works that were good for other people be bad on your behalf. You understand that? So even if you, were, like, you weren't a serial killer, 
Okay, we get that, but see, all of us have Genesis 38 chapters in our background. God just hasn't published them, okay? So this question we're raising about Judah is not just about Judah. This question is about me. This question is about you. So the question is, how could Judah, after sinning so horribly, receive such astonishing blessings? And the answer is because God forgave Judah through the Messiah, Jesus. That's the reason. See, Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of all those who would trust him. And we see evidence in Judah's life that he trusted God. There was a change. At the very end of chapter 38, we see him confessing his sins. It's a beautiful evidence in that chapter. And we see that continuing through the story of of Joseph, which shows that Judah was trusting what God promised to do through the Messiah. Now, I want to remember, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead in the center of history. Old Testament saints, they were forgiven for their sins because of what Jesus would do. New Testament saints, we're forgiven for our sins because of what Jesus did do. But anybody who's forgiven is forgiven because of what Jesus did at the center of history. Old Testament saints forgiven through Jesus. New Testament saints forgiven through Jesus. So Judah's sins were forgiven because when Jesus was dying on the cross, the punishment that he deserved for Genesis 38 and his other sins, all that punishment, the wrath of God that was justly in God's heart towards Judah was poured out not upon Judah, but upon Jesus. The punishment that Judah deserved was poured out not upon Judah, but upon Jesus. God the Father, in great mercy and great love for Judah, punished his own son for Judah's sins. And as Jesus was suffering on the cross, he was paying for Judah's sins. And because of that, how much punishment does Judah still face for his sins? The answer is none. It was all poured out upon Jesus. That's why on the cross Jesus said, it is finished. All Judah's sins are paid for. And all the sins of everyone who trusts Jesus paid for. Now we need to hear this because like I said, we each have Genesis 38s in our in our past. But God loves us and he sent Jesus to pay for the sins of everyone who would trust him. So I want to tell you, no matter how long your Genesis 38 chapter is, no matter how sordid your Genesis 38 chapter is, no matter how heartbreakingly wicked your Genesis 38 chapter is, Jesus came to pay for the sins of everyone who would trust him. Not everyone who makes themselves good enough to deserve it. We can't do that. It's to everyone who would trust him. So, so the question is, do you trust him? Are you trusting Jesus Christ right now? Are you trusting him as your Savior, the one, who, the one who can forgive you. Are you trusting him to forgive you? You cannot forgive yourself. You cannot be good enough to earn forgiveness. If it's left up to you, you will never be forgiven. Are you trusting him? He, in his death on the cross, forgives. Are you trusting him in his mercy to forgive you? Are you trusting him to change you? You can't change yourself. We can't change our 
hearts. But he, by his power, can change our hearts. And so we come to him and we say, I can't change myself. I want to be changed. I trust you. That's trusting him. We trust him to forgive us. We trust him to change us. And then we trust him to satisfy us. Nothing else can satisfy me. I'm turning from whatever else I've trusted to satisfy me. You are my all-satisfying treasure. Change my heart so I see that more clearly, feel that more deeply, and satisfy me with your glory, with your love, with your presence. We trust him to forgive us, to change us, to satisfy us, and when we do, he does forgive us from all of our sins, past, present, and future. He does start to change us, and we will experience that throughout our lives, and he does satisfy us. He pours his very presence into our lives, and we are filled. Just like Anish, the verse he shared, whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. God can fill us so much, and he does this throughout our lives, so we, we need nothing else. His love is so filling, so satisfying, so glorious. Are you trusting Jesus. If so, God's words to you are words of lavish blessing, just like his words to Judah in spite of your Genesis 38 chapter. So the truth that God wants us to learn through Jacob's words to Judah are that God is merciful to forgive those who trust Jesus Christ. God is merciful. I mean, just think of the mercy of God sending his own son, Jesus, and punishing his own son. Think of the mercy of Jesus coming, lowering himself from being fully God, second person of the Trinity, taking on human nature, human body that would be able to feel pain, would be able to suffer, and doing that precisely so that he could be punished in our place. The costly love of the Father and of the Son is beautiful and glorious trust him? Are you trusting him? That's the truth from the words to Judah. Now how about Jacob's words to Joseph? What are we to learn from Jacob's words to Joseph? Well, remember what Joseph had experienced. We're talking about massive trials, years-long trials. He, as a teenager, was torn away from his family and sold into slavery in Egypt. So, away from his family, teenager, a slave. If that wasn't bad enough, then he was unjustly accused of, of sexual advances by Potiphar's wife, and Potiphar threw him into jail, so he went from being a slave in Egypt, as bad as that was, to being in a dungeon in Egypt, which was even worse. Forgotten there for years, Joseph suffered terrible trials. That's the background to this story. But now, if you've been with us, we've seen this is all part of God's plan. God was going to be bringing a famine, which was going to be threatening to his people, the people of Israel, and God wanted to provide food for them. So he did work to stall out with Joseph, and miraculously, God moved Joseph from being in prison to becoming the number two man in all of Egypt, overseeing all of Egypt's food, and that's how God provided food for the people of Israel through the famine. So this is all part of God's plan going on here. But after, so after these years of suffering of Joseph, God blessed him. Remember, he, everywhere he went in Egypt, Egyptians were bowing down to him. He was the number two man over all of Egypt. And this description of 
blessing just continues in Jacob's final words to Joseph. Blessings from above, blessings from beneath, blessings from the breasts and the womb, blessings more than my parents, blessings let them be lavished upon Joseph, blessing, 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 and here's the point I think that God wants us to learn from these words to Joseph. It's that God is faithful to bless those who experience trials. Those who are trusting Christ, God promises throughout the scripture, blessing is coming. Blessing is coming. Joseph, you're, you're there as a slave. You're there now in prison. You're there years. Blessing is coming. Blessing is coming. So some of you may be in trials right now. In fact, I would guess probably many of you are. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Paul said, it's through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Godly people who love Jesus and are full of faith, strong faith, go through trials. Please understand that from the Bible. You may be going through trials at work. Maybe there's injustice there or there's job precariousness or you've been treated unfairly. Maybe it's physical trials, maybe health issues. You're going from one health difficulty to another to another. Maybe it's spiritual difficulties you're facing. Maybe you're battling a temptation and you've been battling it and it is still there and you haven't conquered it yet. You're almost ready to wave the white flag and surrender. It's hard, it's difficult. Spiritual temptations you're facing, trials. Maybe there's relational trials you're facing. Maybe you're facing persecution for having spoken of the Lord Jesus. And if that's you, well done. Well done for lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, again, we, we want to honor the laws of this country. Don't do it publicly. No street corner preaching, but oh, you can talk to individual people. But maybe you're getting some pushback from some friends because of your testimony of Christ. So again, there's lots of different ways that we struggle and suffer trials. Now let me encourage you, if you're going through trials, pray and ask God to take the trial away. God loves to take trials away. He does that throughout the Bible. We see that very, very often, and he may take any of those away. He can heal you. He can change things at work. He loves to take trials away. But there are also many times where in his love, he chooses not to take the trial away because he's going to bring even more blessings than just taking the trial away. That's the promise. So if you're still in the trial now, it's that God in his love is going to bring you even more blessings through having the trial stay. We don't know what all those blessings look like, but we do know the one, one most important one. He's going to bless you with more nearness with him, more sweetheart fellowship with him, a greater outpouring of his love into your heart, greater closeness with him, and he is worth it all. Every trial, he's worth it all. Worth it all, worth it all, worth it all. So if you're trusting Jesus, here's my word to you. Not my word to you. Here's God's word to you. Far more important, okay? Great blessings are coming. They are coming. You don't see them on the horizon maybe, but they're coming. Like that morning Joseph woke up in prison, who knew that that night he was going to be the number two man over all of Egypt? Are you kidding me? Woke up in prison? It's quite the promotion. God can change things 
instantly. And every second he doesn't change things is because in his love, more blessing in him is coming with, to that extra second, that extra hour, that extra decade. God is faithful to bless those who experience trials. And some of you have not been hopeful about the trials you're going through. You've been heartbroken, you've been hopeless, you've been discouraged. We get it, we all understand that, but God wants to have you understand he is faithful. Great blessings are coming to you. Great blessings are coming to you. Trust him, pray that he removes the trial, and then trust him for every day that he chooses not to because great blessings are coming. Two questions I want to leave you with. Are you trusting Jesus Christ to forgive you, to change you, to satisfy you? Are you trusting Jesus Christ? And number two, are you trusting that God is going to bring blessing to you through your trial? Oh, one more thing about the trials. I don't want to leave this off. When you're going through the trials and he hasn't removed them yet, he doesn't just leave you on your own, but he is there. He will strengthen you through the trial. He will comfort you right, through the trial. He will meet you in the trial. He will give you all the, the guidance you need through the trial, the strength you need through the trial, the comfort you need. He will meet all of your needs through the trial. He's right there with you through the trial. And so as you turn to him and say, help me, strengthen my hope, strengthen my faith, he will. He will. Are you trusting Jesus? And are you trusting God's faithfulness to bring you blessings and trials? I hope the answer to both of those is, at least after this morning, is yes, yes. Let's stand together. I want to pray. I pray, Father, for those here this morning who came and they are not yet trusting Jesus Christ to forgive, to change, to satisfy them. I pray that right now you would take this passage beautiful story of Judah and that you would give them faith in Jesus Christ right now. Take out their hearts of stone, give them hearts of flesh, bring them to faith and repentance, I pray right now. I pray for those right now who are going through trials here, Lord, our brothers and sisters. We want to weep with those who weep. We know trials can be very hard, but Lord, we praise you that you are faithful, that blessing great blessing is coming. We don't know all the blessing, but we know that more joy in you, more nearness with you is coming. So I pray, Lord, strengthen those who are going through trials right now. Give them hope. Give them comfort. Meet them, Lord, right now, we pray. And Lord, we worship you. We praise you that you are the rock-solid foundation you are the solid rock. Everything else is singing, but you and your faithfulness and your mercy are the solid rock, and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name.